I know I'm getting old. Yesterday, we were working in my backyard doing this thing, and I <clears throat> lifted up this. It was like 6.30 in the morning. And I lifted up this, well, tried to lift up this really heavy thing. I'm like this, and the sides of my back, I'm like, <clears throat> and it's like, it wasn't my back. It's like my ribs or something. It's like right here on the outside. Anybody? You're old. I was, well, I was talking to a friend of mine. He's like 10 years older than me. He goes, yeah, that happens. <laughs> and I'm like... I mean, I, I just recently came into the thing where you turn your head real fast at some point, and you're like, oh! And like for like three days, you're like, I, I can't turn my head left. <laughs> it is me. It's going to happen to all of you, though. It's called a, it's called a leave is my friend. Um, all right, so uh, I have, what do I have? What do I got to Oh, oh, okay, so I got two things to tell you about. I, I write these things on here, but I can't read my own handwriting. So that's how bad it is. That's how bad it is. Uh, the first off, if you can't tell, there's a barbecue going on outside. Uh, that barbecue is to help kids go to camp. So if you were going to go out to lunch today anyway, just pick up a sandwich. Uh, if you find a teenager around, you can say, hey, what's your, you can buy a ticket from them, and it helps them, that personal kid, go to camp. If you don't like them, ignore them and find another kid. But I know you would never do that. Anyway, uh, get a ticket, uh, get a sandwich. It'll be great. I got, I bought two. My wife's even working today, but I got it in my back pocket. So I'm going to take it home like I have foraged, and I have hunted and slain the beast, and I have brought it home. <laughs> That's what I'm going to tell her anyway. If you're going to buy fireworks this week before the 4th of July, uh, we don't have a fireworks booth, but some friends of mine uh, that run the youth ministry at First Christian do. They're right in front of Toyota Santa Maria, so if you go go buy fireworks, buy them there. You help out those kids to go to camp as well. It's awesome. So if you are newer, newer to Element, welcome. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you get some notes and also some questions to take you a little bit deeper into what we're talking about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. You click on Events and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get sermon notes and verses and questions and announcements and all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me? You're reading God's Word. We'll get started. This is Acts 7, verse 58. And it says, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who live and walk in the calling that you have placed in our lives. That we would understand who we are in the depths of our being and also understand what you have done to rescue and redeem us. And that we would live in that hope that you provide. And that you would gain much glory by how we live and your children would live in much joy. Amen. Have a seat. So we are in a series in the book of Acts. Well, the first half of the book of Acts. This is week 21. Week 21. Uh, Today we're going to get to the beginnings of what we say is what happens next. Two weeks ago we saw the death of one of the first deacons in the Christian church. A persecution is now beginning to break out. So what happens after that takes place? And there's so many bits and pieces to this that it's going to take us a few weeks to get through. Because we're going to go by piece by piece. Today we get to this guy, his name is Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes the Apostle Paul. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Part of what we're doing through the series in Acts is looking at characteristics in the early church and what we as a church are supposed to strive for by the grace of God. 
And we hope that if one day you have to find another church because you have to move out of town or I say something that offends you or makes you mad, which will happen, and you're like, I'm out of there, you will at least find a church that you know follows Jesus and loves who he is. And you will see a lot of these on the left-hand side of your sermon notes if you have them. We start to list those out of the things that we have looked at. Now, today's going to be a little bit different because it's not going to be one of the things that we list out because what we're talking about today is the worst of us. And this is the idea that God can and does offer grace and can redeem any life no matter how bad or how hard-hearted a person may seem. And so two weeks ago, we wrapped up the killing of Stephen, again, one of the early church deacons. Today, we look at one of the main instigators of that killing, this guy named Saul. In Acts 7, 58, it says, And they cast him, that Stephen, out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That means that Saul is the ringleader. This is who all the people who were stoning Stephen saw as giving their approval to the act. That's Saul. That's why they're laying down their garments in front of him. This short section we look at today is only going to be verses uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 8. And the title in my Bible that has on top of this is it says, Saul ravages the church. I, that always makes me think of like Godzilla ravages Tokyo or something like that. But this is what happens. Acts 8 verses 1 through 3. And Saul approved of his execution, that Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So here's nice guy Saul. You're lamenting over the, the loss of one of the deacons uh, of the church. And you're like, oh, this is so sad. Knock, knock, knock. Hi, I'm Saul. Drags you out, either kills you or sends you to prison. What a really nice guy. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. In Acts, what you get to see is big changes in people's lives and what God does. But I think sometimes we read these accounts and it doesn't really connect. We think, well, that's then. It doesn't really relate to me nowadays. So today, we are going to look at this Saul, Paul, Saul, Paul, Saul, we're going to look at this guy, uh, because Paul later will say in 1 Timothy that he is the worst of us, and he believed that. And if God could save Paul, Saul, Paul, Saul, if God could save him, he could save any of us. So after Saul becomes Paul, he says these words, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost but I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Now, Paul says something very interesting here that a lot of people have read and they kind of overlook or nobody has read it and it's like, I don't even know what that means. Paul says, I am the worst. And a lot of people struggle with that because he essentially says, I'm the worst. And then he'll go on to say, and because I'm the worst, I'm also the best. He will say that in three different places in the writings of his that we have. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. The word foremost, it's this word protos, and it means the first. 
in the King James Version, it says the chief of sinners, like he's the, the chief, the head honcho of all the sinners. Uh, John Bunyan, years ago, wrote this book called The Pilgrim's Progress. A lot of people love it. But when John Bunyan wrote his own spiritual autobiography, this verse impacted his life. And so he titled his spiritual autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. What Paul is saying is, of all the people I know, of all the sinners in the world, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. Now, some people say, Paul, you are just exaggerating. You know, get off it. You're, you're not really that bad. And because Christians, we do this all the time. We call this spiritual hype. It's like we're always trying to one-up each other on how bad we used to be before Jesus saved us. It's like, oh, I was a drug addict. You know, And if you were and you love and follow Jesus, awesome. That is great. But somebody's going to come along and go, well, you're a drug addict. Well, I was a Satanist. It's going to be like, and if you're a Satanist and you follow Jesus now, that is awesome. That's great. But someone's going to walk up to you and go, you were a Satanist. I had Satan's baby. <laughs> and if you had Satan's baby, all right, and you follow Jesus, that's awesome. That's great. But someone's going to come up and be like, you had Satan's baby. I was Satan's baby. <laughs> and if you're a Satan's baby and you follow Jesus, that's awesome. Okay, <laughs> that's awesome. We look at Paul and we say, come on, Paul, it's not like you were some type of, you know, mass murderer or serial killer, but he kind of was. Okay, so, well, we say, but you weren't like a rapist or the genocidal head of some country or something. There's plenty of people worse than you. But Paul had thought this through. This is his conviction of what was actually true. So I want to talk to you again about Saul, Paul, Saul. Paul, Saul, this guy, okay? So Saul is raised in Tarsus. He is usually called Saul of Tarsus before he becomes Paul. Uh, Here is a picture. Tarsus is on the Mediterranean Sea right over here, right up there. Now, in Tarsus, it was a leading university city. The university in Tarsus was more respected at the time than the university in Alexandria or Athens. And that is a really big deal. Saul is raised in a religious home. Eventually, he decides to become part of a very strict Jewish sect known as as the Pharisees. Paul had dual citizenship in Rome and in Israel both. And so many scholars believe somewhere in Paul, Saul's family's lifetime that someone in his family was a slave. And when slaves were set free in Rome, they became Roman citizenships. They Roman citizens, so they believe this is how he got his citizenship. And because he was a Roman citizen, Paul was able to go out and spread and teach the gospel throughout the Roman Empire without a whole lot of hindrance until Christianity became illegal. Uh, Paul learned from one of the leading scholars of the day. The guy's name is Gamaliel. He is probably uh, Gamaliel's best pupil that he ever had. Paul most likely had the entire Old Testament memorized. He quotes to it, alludes to it hundreds of times in his writing. Paul is fluent in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and Latin. Martin Luther, uh, the church reformer, called Paul the wisest man after Christ. You know, so, so this guy, this, this Saul, Paul, I mean, because after Jesus saves him, he becomes Paul. He takes on a Greek name rather than a Hebrew name because he wants to reach these Greek people, these Gentiles. And so he becomes Paul, like uh, Abram becomes Abraham in the Old Testament, or Simon becomes Peter, Jacob becomes Israel, Saul becomes Paul because he's a new creation in Christ. But he starts off as a crazy, zealous, young man, zealous for the Jewish faith, and in so doing, he wants to stop all Christians. The first time you meet him is Acts 7, and he's overseeing the execution of Stephen. In Acts 8, Saul is still breathing out all of these murderous threats against Christians, and he's just escalating, he's going up, and he is opposed to anyone who proclaims Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the Christ, as any type of relationship with with God. 
So you see that Saul was religious. He believed he was on God's mission, though it was misguided. He's like the Blues Brothers, right? Whatever. If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. Uh, Paul didn't kill Christians because he was an atheist. He was very religious. Uh, Saul was zealous. He was at the top of his rabbinical class and his studies. Uh, He's not a Kaczynski that would sit out in the woods and type crazy letters and try and blow things up. I mean, this would be a guy in in our culture that's like an intellectual. He would have gone to Brown or Yale or Berkeley or something like that. He studies long. He studies hard. He has this calling. He's going to complete this calling no matter what, and he's very spiritual. He went to the temple. He worshiped God. He's under temple authority. But like so many people today who are religious and zealous and spiritual, Paul's lost in his own self-centered world of sin. And when Jesus saves Paul, he matures him into this giant of the Christian faith. I mean, the amazing thing is, apart from Jesus, Paul is the most influential person in the history of the Christian church. I mean, think of uh, the United States without George Washington or Thomas Jefferson. You can't really do it. Think of the Civil Rights Movement without Martin Luther King or without Rosa Parks. You, you can't really do it. As after Jesus, Paul is the giant in Christian history. And Paul's ministry, it only lasts for about 10 years. Think about what you've done in the last 10 years. Right? Paul, on average, would walk 20 miles a day what, for 10 years. What would you walk 20 miles a day for? Klondike bar? I mean, what, what would you do, right? I don't know, 20 miles a day, that, that's a lot. Throughout Paul's life, he is flogged and he is stoned, and I don't mean where he's smoking out with people, it means where they throw rocks at him until he dies. He's, he's stoned numerous occasions, and it sounds really weird to say that in our culture today. He was stoned lots of times, right? They threw rocks at him, tried to kill him lot, lots of times for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Complete difference in his life. One time, after he's in this town, they take him outside, they throw rocks at him to kill him. They actually think he's dead. And they're like, okay, he's dead. <laughs> We're done. And they go back into town. He gets up, and he's not dead. He walks back into that same town and preaches about Jesus some more. Crazy dude. Just a crazy dude. Uh, he is in a shipwreck. He is set adrift at sea. His reputation becomes shot. Everything that he did to other people is done to him. But he perseveres because he understands Jesus' love and his calling in his life. Paul Barnett says, Jesus was the first Christian theologian and arguably the best in the history of the church. Paul goes on. He will write 13 of the 27 New Testament books that we have. Acts 13 to 28 is focused primarily on Paul's life and ministry. So Paul writes more books than anybody else. The person with the most content in the New Testament is Luke, and Luke writes Luke and the book of Acts, and it is widely held that Luke becomes a Christian because Paul led him to Jesus. So without Paul, most of the New Testament does not even exist. Paul starts off killer of Christians, ends up being killed because he is a Christian. This Paul is the one who says, of all the people I know, of all the sinners in the world, I'm the worst. And do we say, well, come on, you know, get off it, you're not that bad, you're exaggerating. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. In Ephesians 3, verses 7 and 8, Paul says this, Of this gospel I was made a minister. And then in verse 8 he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
When the New Testament, when you read the word saints there, it doesn't mean that they did three miracles and they were venerated by the church and now they're a saint. Saint means Christians. It doesn't mean super Christians. It just means, I believe in Jesus. Bam, you are a saint. You're there. Paul says, of this gospel, I was made a minister. Though I am the least of all Christians... Of all Christians, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And it's not exaggeration. He says it in three different places in three different ways. That's his deep conviction. It's his well-considered position. It's not exaggeration. And this is hard for us today because we've been taught all about self-esteem and we're supposed to be so wonderful and so great. So we look at this and we think, well, you know, he's got to be exaggerating. Is this also for Paul? It is not self-centered depression. Like, I will tell you guys a lot how terrible you are. You are. You are terrible. I'm terrible. We're all horrible people. And people say, well, that's the problem with Christianity. It makes people have low self-esteem when you talk about how bad they are. That's not why I tell you how bad you are. I tell you that so you can understand the grace that Jesus stepped into your life and saved and redeemed and brought you home and put you in a relationship with God because he is so good, because he is so amazing. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, writes his own spiritual autobiography, and he calls it Confessions. And in this book, he talks about how he and some of his friends went to this apple orchard, they climbed some trees, and they stole a bunch of apples. So when he writes Confessions, he thinks back on this moment, and he writes how horrible and terrible that was, how sinful that was in his life. Now, just a few years ago, there's this other book that came out that completely skews how Augustine was talking about his life. The writer's name is Philippe Armesto, and he writes this book called Reformations, a Radical Interpretation of Christianity in the World. This is, this is what he says about Augustine. He says, he's a child of a dominant mother, victim of a guilt-ridden conscience. Augustine wrote the bewilderingly haunted confessions in which infantile peccadilloes like stealing apples and adolescent fumblings with instinctive sexuality are bewailed with all the anguish of a frustrated perfectionist. He was trapped between the humility of acknowledging his own dependence on God and the arrogance of insisting that everyone else was equally tainted by sin, irredeemable but by grace." And what he will do in this book is he will say, he will say, Paul and Augustine both had the same problem. They're the guys that look at things like stealing apples and they say, oh, how awful, how sinful. He will say it is psychologically pathological. And he'd say, oh, they must have clearly had a bad upbringing and they have low self-esteem. And then the author will say, but the rest of us are normal, right? Because we look at things like stealing some apples. Oh, kids just do that. It's okay. Whatever. I told them no, they did it anyway. Whatever. Like, I got a great example of this. So, got these kids in my gospel community. Love them dearly. They're a lot of fun. I, I love hanging out with them. But these kids, okay, they want to play with my dog, and they always throw my dog's ball over the fence. Now, they have been told multiple occasions, don't throw the ball, because my neighbor's yard is like full of weeds. And the ball goes over the fence, it rolls in the go for her, and, and you'll never find it again. And so we're like, don't throw the ball. Got it. Don't throw the ball over the fence. They're like, yeah, yeah, ding, over the fence. They always throw my dog's ball over the fence. And I don't buy cheap because my dog chews up everything, so I buy these like solid rubber balls that are like impossible. Well, she still chews them up eventually. But, I mean, they last me for months and months. These things are like 10 bucks a piece. And bing! I'm like, that's 10 bucks! What are you doing? One day, I hope they feel as bad as Augustine does. That's what I'm saying. Now, I don't think Philippe Armesto read Augustine or Paul very closely. 
Because what Augustine says about the apples is the exact same thing that Paul says. He's the worst. Why? 1 Timothy 1, again, Paul says, I'm a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. That translates as a violent man. But I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. You know, we, we sometimes think that ignorance is a great excuse for the things that we do. I didn't know. Sometimes that will get you, you know, off the hook. Like, I didn't know the speed limit here wasn't 105. Or something like that. You know, I didn't know an all-Twinkie diet was bad for you. <laughs> I didn't know Robin Banks was illegal. I don't know. You know, whatever it is, right? Paul says, I was a blasphemer. Why? Because he didn't know who Jesus claimed to be. And when you don't know who Jesus is, that he's the son of the living God, you might say some blasphemous things. He says, I was a persecutor. He persecuted Christians. But why? Because he thought he was doing the work of God. He thought he was pleasing God by doing it. He didn't believe who Jesus said he was. And so ignorance works for those first two, but not the last thing. The insolent opponent or a violent man. This is the Greek word hubristes. And, and this word is where we get our word hubris, which is where we get our word pride from. This means uh, the word hubrasis is this idea of you take things that are good and you throw them on the ground, you trample them under your feet. You're trampling the good things around you. This is what Paul is saying. I was good. I didn't lie. I obeyed. Uh, I was not an abuser of women. I didn't uh, hurt children. I helped out the poor. I went to church. I prayed. I knew the Bible. But underneath all of that, there was a goodness that I had from a different motive. I did it simply for morality because I thought I was better than other people. I felt superior because of what I did. Because of my own goodness, I trampled on people. Now, Paul and Augustine both really say the same thing, that there's something in their heart that's centered on pride. In Confessions, Augustine says, When I willed to commit the theft of the apples, I did not... I did so not because I was driven to it by any need. I stole a thing of which I had plenty of my own and of much better quality. So he didn't steal them because he needs them. Actually, after he stole them, he and his friends threw them at pigs, which I think is actually okay because the pigs just make bacon out of it. So that's good, right? But he says, no, I did it because it was forbidden. He said, I love the sin not for that which I did the sin, but I love the sin itself. He says he didn't need it, he didn't want it, but that his mom said no. And the second his mom said no, he's like, I'm going to go take those apples. That's what I'm going to go do. And this is the problem with all of us. We all live like this. What do you do when somebody tells you no? You're like, oh, you don't tell me no. What if you're talking to you and you're married, you talk to your spouse, and you're like, uh, no, I don't think that's a good idea. You're like, well, I want to tell you why it's a good idea. Right? And they're like, it's not a good idea. And you're like, and, and you get, because why? Because you think you are so smart. You think you have it all together so much better than anybody else. It's all pride. This is what they're saying. It's all pride. You know, Augustine says this. He says, sins of childhood differ only in objects, not in nature, from the most terrible ones later in life. See, the point is not a desire for apples. The desire is to be our own God. We all want sovereignty. We all want what we want when we want it. You even tell a one-year-old no, what do they do? Yeah! Right? I mean, if they could, they get out and, like, squish you, but they can't because they're one, and they're like, ah! right? But they let you know by the sound of their voice, they are not happy that you said no. Like, ah! We all, we all do that. He's like, no one's going to tell me what to do. This is the thing. Sins of childhood differ in their objects, but not in their nature from the most terrible ones later in life. They both say the same thing. See, 
Tim Keller says this. He says, Augustine, before he became a Christian, was leading this incredibly licentious lifestyle, doing anything he wanted, totally immoral. So he's immoral. I mean, we, even like in the church today, we look and be like, oh man, look at the sexual weirdness of that guy. That's, that's what you would label Augustine like before he followed Jesus. And he says, Paul was an absolute moralist. So Paul is like the guy who follows like all the rules, Bible Belt, you know, dun, 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 let's, let's do this. And th- that's Paul. He says, Augustine would have been running around organizing movements of sexual liberation, and St. Paul would have been running around picketing and bashing him. So, two different sides. But he says, but the Bible says they're the same. They're the same. Underneath each one, there was a violent pride that wanted to be its own master, its own savior, its own lord, to feel superior to everyone else. And they're just using morality or immorality, religion or irreligion, for the exact same end. And that's true of all of us. Guys, it is only by the grace of God that there is any goodness that we do. And usually we are not that good. Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. But we all are. This is why Paul says what he does. Because he understands what the Bible says about sin, but also what it says about grace. That sin is a desire to have everything in the universe revolve around you. Everything go the way that you want. It's all pride. And because of that, Paul says he is easily as bad as the worst sinner imaginable. He is able to know the deceits of his own heart because he's got enough guts to actually look. My question for you is, can you face yours? Can you look at what's really going on in your heart when you don't get what you want and how you respond and actually label it what it really is? Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Those are amazing words. Paul says, because I'm the worst, I'm also the best. And we have issues with both those statements, right? Because, oh, the worst, you're too hard on yourself. Oh, you're the best? You forget your humility much? Yeah, you're a weirdo. That's what we do. I mean, we're afraid to say these things because we have false humility and false pride. Like, if we do something and we want everybody to notice, we don't say anything because that's false humility. Oh, I'm not going to say anything. People can notice. But when people don't notice, you're like, how come nobody noticed that? What's wrong? That's false pride. It's like, we're terrible. I don't think Paul was either of those things. This is why an understanding of the gospel is so important. Because the gospel says on one hand, yeah, you are the worst. You are no different. You are no different than a singer and a boy band. You're not. But neither is Mother Teresa from that singer and a boy band. See, I didn't make fun of country music today. You're welcome, right? You're essentially the same. You've been living your life trying to get away from God. You're equally in need of grace. You're irredeemable without it. The gospel comes in and it humbles us. It humbles us. But then it turns around and says, but you are covered by the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ. And when God sees you, he sees you through Jesus. And that makes you the best. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.16, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The Greek word that Paul uses there, for example, it means a hyper pattern. It's like the pattern that stands out. He says, Jesus has saved me, the worst of sinners, so I could be the ultimate type of what a Christian is supposed to be. I'll tell you this, in in the scriptures, there is no other event other than the death and the resurrection of Jesus that gets as much airtime as the eventual conversion of Saul into Paul. Why? Because Paul indicates himself that Jesus is going to make use of him in his life. And for the rest of Paul's life, he's got to live with what he did, killing these Christians. He'd probably see somebody whose son or his brother or daughter or his wife or his father or mother he killed. Oh, look, there's Stephen's widow and their three little kids. Oops. You know, what do you do do with that? How does Paul deal with his conscience? 
In Romans 8, verse 1, Paul says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is, if I can deal with my conscience, if Jesus can save me, if I can come to Christ, if I can be turned around, so can you. So can you. And in Romans 8, it's this great theological treatise that Paul talks through. And in verse 17, in the middle of it, he just says this. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. And that's not like a new point. He's not moving his whole thing somewhere. It's just like this ecstatic thing he shouts out in the middle of Romans chapter 8. Why? Because Paul can't help thinking how bad he was and equating with now how Jesus has saved him and what it's turned him into. Because he sees what he was, he's immediately filled with joy because of what God has done. And if you think you understand the gospel because you realize how horrible you were, how wicked you are, how you're the worst of sinners, and as a result you get depressed and shy, you never open your mouth and tell other people about Jesus, that means you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the gospel. Paul says, because I, under, because I was the worst, and I know this, I understand the grace of God so much more. I can live in that grace and that goodness, and it turns into praise. And that's the way that Paul lived. I mean, the gospel is essentially Jesus took on all of your sin and gave you his righteousness. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he, that's God the Father, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, it doesn't say God made Jesus sinful. It says he made him sin. He placed all of our sin upon him. On the cross, God took all of our sin and placed it upon Jesus. I mean, you ever see like a really bad summer movie? I know we all do. We're like, oh, I can't believe I spent my money on that. That's two hours I can't get back. And the popcorn was bad. You know, and, and usually you'll find this, like this villain in one of these really bad movies, and they're over the top. It's like every little evil cliche, it's like this guy does. Like, they kill puppies, and they kill women, and they kill, and, you know, it's just, they're just horrible. And you're like, man, somebody needs to run that guy over, or run his plane into a cliff, or shoot him, or something, you know. Here comes Arnold, and it is not a tumor. And he, like, shoots him, and you're like, yay, the bad guy's dead. Think of all that evil stuff, all of that evil stuff that we hate so much, also resides in our hearts because we're the worst, and it was also taken and placed upon the person of Jesus on the cross. All of it. All of it. That's what happened on the cross. God made him sin. God takes the worst parts, our sin of all that we are, pours it out on him. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus takes his righteousness and he gives it to us. Paul says, that is the message that changed me. Jesus came into the world to save us. Jesus came into the world to be in our place, to exchange. This is called the great exchange, to exchange our sin for his righteousness. Martin Luther said, my paraphrase, the gospel is that you are more wicked than you ever dared believe, and you are more loved than you ever dared hope at the same time. When we trust Jesus with our lives, God sees us as holy and without blame, even the worst of us. This is what God does. He takes our sin places on Jesus, makes us righteous. This is why as Christians, we should live as humble people because our righteousness does not come from us. It does not come from what we do. It does not come from trying to do all the right things. It comes from Jesus who rescued us. And that in turn gives us the freedom to go out and live a life in front of everybody else of this great grace that we have received. This is how we go and we live it out in front of the people and we give grace away to other people. And we understand that that person in your life, you just think that person is the worst, it's because they are. And so are you. And because they are the worst, Jesus still died for them as well. And he wants to use you 
to be the light in their life, to tell them about Jesus and to live what difference God can make in us. It is a trustworthy saying. You know, we are the worst of sinners, but Jesus has saved us. And so we can be examples. We can all be the hyper pattern of what he has done and what rescue and redemption looks like. This is why we come to communion every week. It's where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me so that we can be a people who have our sins forgiven and can be restored to life and live in that goodness every single day. Jesus rises from the grace to rise us to new life again. The band's going to come up. And as they do, we invite you to take communion, be some deacons in the back, and if you guys need prayer for anything. I mean, maybe you're in a place today, and, and you're just totally depressed because of what your life has been like and what you've been through. You're like, man, how could God ever redeem or ever use this? Your life is not about your past. Your life is about what Jesus has done. And that should change everything about how you live and how you see who you are. It should change everything and we should begin to live in grace and goodness to those around us they love to pray with you about anything there's offering boxes inside one in the back and we give because god gave so much to us giving is simply part of our worship so you have that opportunity every single week uh, there's food in the back uh, my wife made these peach cobblers i brought forks i brought plates they're going to be in the back you can eat some of that and even if it's bad you tell it was the best thing you ever ate it's not. It's awesome because I ate some last night. So. <laughs> this is for who? <laughs> oh, whoops. All right. um, grab some to eat. Meet some other people. Hopefully, you know, get a sandwich today too. But, but take some time as you eat, as you, as you hang out a little bit, and start maybe becoming friends with people and talk through some of the stuff in the sermon notes. Ask some of the questions. I mean, can you really allow somebody in your life to the place where you could tell them when you look deep at your own heart, what's going on there? What are the things that you would say, I am the worst of sinners? But then you also turn that into just this ecstatic praise because even though that's you, that's not who you are anymore because you are now a child of God and God has rescued, redeemed you, and called you home. And it is this beautiful thing. He can take someone like Paul and save him. He can take someone like all of us and rescue us and set us on mission so that we get to be his hands and feet to the world. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to live and walk in your ways. That we would understand the depth and the depravity of our sin and our pride and our hearts. That we really, truly always think that we are more right than anybody else. And it's not just that we hate it when somebody tells us no or somebody contradicts us. We hate it when you tell us no. And we want to fight with you and the things in your word and say, well, that's not what it really means. It's got to mean something that agrees with me. God, I ask that you would humble us. You would humble us. And make us a people who trust you as the good God that you are. Because when we look at our own lives and our own world, we are constantly messing it up. Our pride constantly destroys everything. And yet you continue to chase down your children, call them, deem them, and love them. Teach us not to make our lives about ourselves, but about you. About giving you glory in all that we do. And in turn doing that, you are so good as you give us great joy. Teach us to live with lives focused upon who you are, 
understanding who that makes us become and living in the truth and the hope that you bring. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.